The following is a message by Dr. James Renahan from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Our Father our home, our hope, we bow before you and ask you to come and meet with us now as we study your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73. I won't take the time to read the entire psalm right now, I'll make some comments on it as we proceed through. The place to begin our study of this psalm, though, is in the inscription at the beginning, where we are told that this is a psalm of Asaph. Now, it's very important for us to know and understand who Asaph was, because that understanding influences the way that we interpret the rest of the psalm. If we were to look at the rest of scripture, we would find that Asaph is described to us as a godly man. He appears a couple of times in the book of First Chronicles, and there he is presented to us as one of the ministers who was appointed by David to serve in the tabernacle. In fact, on the day when the tabernacle was brought to Jerusalem by David, Asaph was at the front of the line and was leading the worship of God in that event. We are told in First Chronicles 16.37, after the ark had been placed in Jerusalem. This is what the text says. So David left Asaph and his brothers there before the ark of the covenant of the Lord to minister before the ark regularly as every day's work required. So his daily responsibility was to serve the Lord before the ark of the covenant and to be a leader of worship in Israel. Now we also know that he was a godly man who wrote 12 psalms. We have at least 12 that are ascribed to him. Thus, we can conclude that he was a man who was moved by the Holy Spirit in order to compose portions of Holy Scripture. He was a godly man. He was a leader in Israel. He was a spiritual man, not just a prominent man in the nation, but someone who was before the nation regularly as a spiritual leader among them. And it is important for us to keep this in mind as we work our way through this psalm. Now notice verse 1. Here we have the conclusion to the psalm presented to us at the beginning. And Asaph wants us to remember this. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. This is a truism. This is a certainty. This is something that must be kept in mind. God is a God who keeps covenant, who is good to his nation, to those who are pure in heart. But immediately after stating this, Asaph proceeds to describe for us a problem, a crisis that he faced. Notice verses 2 and 3. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He uses two figures which are easy for us to understand. I had almost stumbled... My steps had nearly slipped. Last Friday, 
I had the opportunity to take my wife and our daughter to the Grand Canyon. And we stood on the edge of the rim and marveled at the creative power of God. But we also felt the danger that was present there at the rim of the Grand Canyon. I'm sure many of you have been there. In places, it has been necessary for the National Park Service to erect a barrier so that you cannot get too close and fall over. But there are other places where you can walk right up to the edge and look down. We walked a little ways down the Bright Angel Trail. And uh, some of you know that's a narrow switchback trail that goes down. And there are many places on that trail where you can feel the danger. If you stumbled or if you slipped, you would suffer at least a severe injury, if not death. Asaph uses that kind of picture to describe his own spiritual condition. And what was wrong with him? He tells us that he was envious. He was making a comparison between himself and those who were around him. Now again, remember... He was a prominent man himself. He was a man that perhaps others looked to and envied. Oh, I wish that I could be like Asaph. I wish I could have the prominence in Israel that Asaph had. But though he was a prominent man, he was looking around at others and he was envying them. Now, what is it that he was envying? Well, he describes these people in verses 4 through 9, and it's a very strange description. If you think about a godly man and the envy in his heart towards these people. It is striking what he says about himself. Notice verses 4 through 9. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Now, aren't those strange things for a godly man to envy? Pride, violence, abundance, scoffing mouths that speak wickedly and loftily. And yet Asaph, as he looks around, envies these people. It seems so unusual to us, doesn't it? But that's how he describes himself. That's how he describes his envy. That's how he describes his difficulty. He looks around at these people. And in some sense, he wants what they have. But he hasn't ceased in his description of their lives. Notice verses 10 through 14. Therefore, his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. These people whose lives make Asaph envy them are arrogant. They speak against God. They are practical atheists. They carry on their lives as if God does not know and cannot see. When they go into their rooms and close their doors, they believe that the ceiling hides them from the all-seeing eyes of God so that he is unaware of their acts. And they boast to one another and speak to one another about the lack of knowledge in the Most High. Strangely, they call him the Most High. But they ask the question, is there knowledge in him? Their arrogance confront his pain. He says that all day long he struggles. He faces difficulty. 
and yet they live their lives in comfort. And he seems to be asking the question, is the life of faith really worth the effort? Notice verses 13 and 14. He looks at himself, and he knows of his dedication to serving the Lord carefully. Surely, he says, I've cleansed my heart and washed my hands in vain. I live a careful life. I seek to honor the Lord in the way that I walk. I seek to serve him in the way that I speak, in the way that I act, in the way that I think. But the result of my pursuing these things in my life, verse 14, is that I've been plagued all day long and chastened. Those are descriptive words as well. The plague is a terrible thing. When you read descriptions of the Middle Ages and the suffering and the death that came to people when they faced the plague, and you contemplate Asaph using that word to describe his own circumstance, he's not talking about a mild personal difficulty. He's saying that he feels deep in his heart the the difficulties of life. And he looks at the ungodly around him, and he asks the question, is the life of faith really worth the effort? These are hypocrites. They're Israelites who are so wicked. But he envies them. And he's struggling. It's as if he's asking himself the question, why do I seek to serve the Lord? You see, we find Asaph here in a moment in which there is a great crisis of faith. Here is a spiritual man, a godly man, a leader in Israel, a man who was recognized by King David for his spiritual discernment and his abilities and placed at the forefront of the worship of God. And yet in his heart, in his inner being, he is struggling at the most profound level with his faith. And whether or not it is worth it for him to continue to serve the Lord as he has done. Godly men, spiritual leaders, may have profound personal struggles. Now in verse 15, Asaph realizes that if he articulates his thoughts, he will commit a terrible crime. If I had said, I will speak thus that is, speaking the words of verses 13 and 14. If I had done this, if these words had escaped from my lips, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. And then he tells us, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. He's in deep confusion. Now, as I have meditated on this psalm, I've asked myself a question at this point. How long was Asaph in this dark tunnel? It doesn't seem to me that the text indicates that it was a moment. In fact, it seems to me that it was a prolonged period of time. And I try to imagine Asaph going from his dwelling place to the tabernacle, walking through the city of Jerusalem, hardly able to lift his eyes up to heaven. He sees the street that is in front of him. He sees the wicked who are around him. And day after day, though he goes to the place of the worship of God, he can see nothing beyond his own crisis, beyond the struggle of his heart, and the wealth and the comfort, the pride, the arrogance, the boasting that is present in those who are around him. How long was he in this dark tunnel? Was he like David, 
for a period of at least nine months when he went through a dark and difficult struggle? Well, we can't put a time frame on this exactly, but I think that we can say based on the text that this was a long, protracted period of deep, dark, spiritual confusion on the part of this godly man. Now in verse 17, light dawns. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary is the place where he served. David appointed him to go there daily. And every day he went and he served in that place. I wonder, how many times did he enter while he was in his state of confusion? How many times did he go through the motions of service in the tabernacle? How often did he do what he was supposed to do? While all of the time his mind was a jumble of confusion, being tempted by the wicked who were around him. But at some point, when he is present in the sanctuary, light comes to him. And it is of great significance that it comes to him there. Because at that place, he understands their end. Now, that's very interesting language, isn't it? Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Now, when he goes into the sanctuary of God, he doesn't see them. What he sees is God. But in seeing the burning holiness, the greatness, the glory of God, suddenly, in contrast, he sees the darkness of those around him whose lives he is envying. He goes on to tell us, Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. He uses the same kind of language that he used of himself back in verse 2. My steps had nearly slipped. But Lord God, you have placed them in slippery places and you cast them down to destruction. They fall over the precipice and come to their end. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Now he continues on to describe his struggle. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. He says that while he was in this period of spiritual stupor, he was like a beast. Now what does a beast do? Beast looks for food. When the beast is in a rut, he looks for a mate. And that's about all that the beast can do. Nasaph says, that's what I was like. I was living my life without any real consciousness of God. And I was pursuing it like a beast, foolish and ignorant. But in verses 23 and 24, he tells us something about God while he was in those, that period of struggle. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Though I walked like a beast, yet, Lord, you never left me. You watched over me. You kept me. You protected me. You are the one who has brought me into the sanctuary. And then he comes towards these great words of climax. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I want nothing, I have nothing, but the God of heaven and earth. He's my king in heaven, 
He's the one I desire on earth. Everything else can be let go because I have him. And then finally, there is an epilogue. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. He summarizes, in a sense, the entire psalm in these last two verses. The Lord will destroy his enemies, but he will keep his people. And that sends us back to the beginning of the psalm. Surely, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. See, Asaph returns to the beginning. That's the theme of the psalm, that God is good to Israel, that he watches over those who love him and serve him, who are pure in heart. Now, Asaph was a man of deep spiritual struggles. And he stands before us as an example of the fact that you and I may face these same kind of spiritual struggles. But there is a remedy for us that is far better than the remedy that belonged to Asaph. You see, Asaph had an earthly sanctuary. He went there every day. And finally, at some point, it dawned upon him that God was in heaven and that those upon the earth were nothing. It was the earthly sanctuary that was the means of delivering him from his spiritual stupor. But brothers and sisters, we have an even greater sanctuary. Do you remember Jesus' words that were misunderstood by the Jews of Jerusalem in John chapter 3, when he spoke about the temple that would be destroyed, but then raised up in three days? He did not speak in those words of the second temple in Jerusalem, though that's what the Jews thought. Do you remember John's description of the new Jerusalem? He says, there is no temple there. Jesus speaks of the destruction of the temple and the building of a new one. John says that in the new Jerusalem, there is no temple. What is this about? It is that Jesus is our temple. Jesus is our sanctuary. He is the temple who was raised in three days. He is the temple in the new Jerusalem. He is the sanctuary to which we can go. In fact, I think that we can take some of the language from verse 14 and say the reason that he is our sanctuary is that he is the one who was plagued and chastened for us all day long. Asaph, you see, was restored in a portable structure, in a tent, in a place that could be moved from one location to another. It wasn't even as grand as the permanent building that was erected by David's son, Solomon. But we do not come to an earthly sanctuary. We come to Christ himself. He is the sanctuary of God. He is able to assist us, to restore us, even when we walk in darkness, as did our friend Asaph. Brother, sister, Find your life in this temple, in this sanctuary. Guard your heart so that you do not wander. Do not let yourself become envious of those who are so wicked they are described in the terms of this psalm. Stay close to Christ. Let him be the strength of your heart and your portion forever, as Asaph expresses himself. Put your trust in the covenant keeper. 
And as Asaph says in verse 28, go forth and declare all of his great works. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, thank you for Christ our sanctuary. May he deliver us from our envy of the boastful. By your spirit, keep him before us. And let us walk in the joy of faith because of our Savior. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Copyright 2007 Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.